Isn't it? It's good to be in the house. It's good to be able to uh, come together. You know, it's a new Bible study when there's a new title card, right? Um, y'all pay attention to that? Every once in a while, the Bible just is from a different angle, or there's a, a different, uh, um, you can see the top of it, the side of it. Sometimes it's closed. Um, sometimes it's open to Psalms 94. You just don't ever know. Uh, but you'll probably uh, get used to this one over the next several, um, let's say months, as we embark on a incredible journey um, through um, a brand new, uh, not a brand new book, it's been around for a few thousand years, but a new study for us at least. Um, we are going to begin a study um, of one of the most rich, most powerful, most important pieces of literature ever written. Um, not just religious re- literature, um, not just uh, non-fiction, uh, non-fictional lit- literature. Um, this is one of the most uh, important, the most monumental, the most impactful uh, pieces of literature that has ever been written. Um, the, the study that we're about to embark on, the book that we're about to read together, it is dripping with authenticity. Um, it is overflowing with inspiration. It is packed with words and wonders, signs and works that should have never been uh, said, should have never taken place, and should have never been believed Otherwise, uh, many, many eyewitnesses saw and heard the things that are written about in this book, but one particular man wrote them down, um, and he ordered them in a way that would send a message to the future, and that would, and whoever would pick it up, honestly, that would send a message that would forever be captivating, exhilarating, and convincing, that would send an undeniable reminder about its main character. This story that most assume would have been long forgotten years ago remains the greatest story ever told. And the contents of this particular version, this particular account, are more widespread and more known than any other piece of religious scripture. And as many people are familiar with the contents of this text as they are who quote any given contemporary piece of literature... We simply call this book, which is really an ancient, um, uh, ancient document, um, we simply call this book John. I doubt John would be too thrilled that we call this book that is not about him at all. I doubt he'd be too thrilled that we call this book John, but that's just how the ancient world um, understood things, and that's just how we happen to have this um, record um, of what is more properly called the gospel according to John. Um, and that's what we're going to study for the next few months. Um, this will be a long study. Um, we were um, finished, we had finished up Second Peter, so we were on the brink of First, Second, and Third John. And of course, uh, there's Jude, but then there's Revelation. But I thought, you know, before we get into the rest of what John has to say, we ought to start with what John, um, with, with John's main and most important message, because John's uh, supplementary texts all build off what he writes to us in this gospel um, of, uh, that we call John. Um, so I want to spend a little bit of time, as we don't normally do with these studies, um, kind of getting to know the writer, getting to know the, uh, the circumstances of the text and why it was written, when it was written, all that stuff. Um, and then we'll spend um, the latter portion of our study um, digging into the chapter, really the first portion of the chapter. We'll see how much we can get done today. But I want to start off by talking about who wrote this book. Of course, um, we know that a man named John wrote this book, but it's very important 
important that we understand which John and uh, about this John because in the first chapter we're introduced to another John who is not the John that's writing it. So we need to know um, all of these Johns, right? Um, so uh, the writer of the book um, uh, of whom it's named for and after is a man named John Zebedee's son, right? So John Zebedee's son. Um, Zebedee's son would have been his last name or in the, in the Hebrew vernacular, it would have been John Bar Zebedee or John son of Zebedee. Uh, we English speakers would take that bar or that son and put it on the end of the word. So John would have been known to his contemporaries as John Zebedee's son because he was the son of Zebedee. Now, you know John um, as a fisherman, right? But maybe you didn't know that John was a very religious man. Before he ever came to Jesus, uh, these two things may not have a lot in common. Um, most of the, uh, the people that were associated with the Fisherman's Guild in the New Testament era of Israel were not the most religious, but John happened to be a pretty religious man. Um, there's a connection that we can draw um, as we piece together John's backstory if the Jewish religion was a pond or a river, um, it had been dried up for hundreds of years. If you were to consider the Jewish faith and the kind of the morale and the excitement around Judaism, it would have been a pond or a river that no one had fished at for a long, long time. Uh, the small wadi or puddles in the dried valleys or channels were enough to imagine for people to imagine more. Right? You could almost picture there being more water and a vibrant flow of uh, of water coming in, but those uh, pictures were not enough to make it a reality, and the stories told by many of olden days were considered to be more legend or myth. The odds of the waters ever flooding this area again, the odds of the spirit of old returning to Israel and the Jewish faith again were slim to none, as many, many had walked away from the faith of the Jewish and the Jewish God. Much like in the Old Testament days, Israel's condition was considered a reflection of its connection with God. In the Old Testament, um, you can open up to any chapter or verse of the historical books or the prophetical books, and you can get a kind of an idea that if Israel was in a, play, a good place, the prophets were uh, singing praises of how faithful they had been and how obedient they had been. But the, if Israel was in a bad place, the prophets were quick to say, because you have been disobedient, God has brought this upon us, right? Even if Israel appeared to be suffering unrighteously or unjustly, the prophets and elders would speculate that something was still amiss with the hearts of God's people. And if things were not as they should be, people begin to point the fingers, right? People begin to say, well, who isn't living right? Which group of people are disobeying God so as to bring this judgment or this um, bad time upon us? There was some lesson to be learned, some moral gap that needed to be bridged, some area that needed to be addressed that God was using this kingdom or that kingdom to reveal and to bring attention to. But Israel had been passed from Persians to Greeks, kicked around from local tribal leaders for hundreds of years, and no lesson had been learned. And honestly, no prophet had been heard from. It had been 400 years since a prophet of God had spoken any sort of message of hope or any sort of message of discipline. Many believe that that day was gone. In those days, and, and the idea of God ever returning to Israel in a powerful and a real and authentic way was just um, a false hope. 
Around 60 B.C., after Roman influence spread around the world, they noticed Judea was a continual nuisance left to itself. So Rome sent in the big guys. Pompey the Great rolled into town and planted his flag, and they treated Israel worse than they would dogs. They humiliated them to the nth degree, defying Jewish tradition and faith, desecrating the temple, and stunting their ability to ever worship and and rally around their God as they once had. Herod the not-so-great was installed as the king of the Jews, and the religious leaders were put on a leash. Any sort of uprising, any would-be prophets or messianic talk had to be snuffed out in a minute because Rome was forever. And Rome did not want any Jewish uh, fantasies or any any Jewish uh, people fantasizing or dreaming about the olden days returning. Rome didn't want Judaism spouting out this idea that Israel would one day be the focus of the world again or the force of the world. Rome didn't want what they had heard before of the days of Solomon, the days of David. Rome didn't want Israel to ever imagine that it one day might be as glorious as it once was before. Rome did not want there to be any sort of hope or ambition that Israel might supplant the great Roman Empire. Judaism was only alive in the minds of the Jews, but the idea of any Old Testament prophecies coming true were to be taken as metaphors. If you were looking for the kingdom of God, look to Rome and make the best of it. Rome would not tolerate any talk or even fantasizing of secession and any whiff of talk regarding insurrection or takeover would be dealt with and met with as many crosses as necessary. And anyone so foolish to cross the line was nailed to a cross many times a week. So for that reason, the temple was really in low spirits and low morale The Jewish faith was splintered up. There were groups of hermits that actually defected from the the temple and from the the central faith. These groups of hermits called Essenes took refuge um, way down south in the Dead Sea community, the Dead Sea communities, and this group of hermits searched and copied the scriptures. You've heard of the Dead Sea community because the Dead Sea community, the little community of Qumran, is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and where they are believed to come out of. This group of hermits, if you will, this group of reclusive Um, Jewish fanatics of the Old Testament, they would make copies and search the Scriptures up and down looking for an inkling of hope and insight that there may be a coming, a new age of prophets and maybe even a Messiah would show Israel that it wasn't over after all. Many defected from the temple and the religious hub and began seeking after a word from this new movement that seemed to be spearheaded or at least sponsoring an upstart prophet who was making a lot of noise and a lot of waves, literally, around the Jordan River. And that's where we find John at the beginning of his story, hoping the God of Israel would one day restore Israel and be renowned because of Israel, aware of this new movement on the horizon that is preaching that God is about to do something new, that this idea that that God is going to fulfill old prophecies and establish a new covenant. And that's where another John enters into our story. Another John enters the pages of history, and if we're being proper as we're trying to be, he would have been known as John Zachariasen, or as you know him, as John 
the Baptist, or John the one who baptized. John was calling people away from the temple. John made a big scene. He joined this reclusive movement down in the Dead Sea area, down in Qumran. He began to spearhead this movement of searching the Scriptures. They began studying Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the script stories of David and Moses and Abraham. And John led this community and they were set on fire with the hope that God was once more drawing near as John the Baptist began to be inspired and began to see things that were, that were taking place, seeing the, the dots that he could connect. John began to lead this movement and preach to them that God was about to do something brand new, something different, something fresh, and in all accords with what was written and predicted before. So John the Baptist came north from the Dead Sea community as he followed the Jordan River. He made his way near Jerusalem and made a big splash as he began preaching. The temple is not going to bring hope. The temple is not where God is going to return, but he is going to show his face on these very banks. John was calling people to the Jordan River, saying that God was about to show up. And John, Zebedee's son, John, the writer, John, like any good fisherman, knew when it was time to move from one body of water to the next. And he kept his eye over his shoulder at what was going on down by the Jordan as in Galilee, he knew things weren't getting much better. Tradition held him back. Peer pressure, fear, the unknown kept him in line. But John the Baptist's movement grew and grew. And John, the writer, could not ignore it any longer. So the Gospel of Mark tells us how kind of John the Baptist came on the scene like this. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, that's the Dead Sea area, proclaiming a baptism of, the repent, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is a, oh, that's a mouthful, right? But John appeared claiming that he had a means of reconciling people to God, and it wasn't through the temple's walls, it wasn't through temple sacrifice, it wasn't through the temple gate and all that tradition. It was through something brand new that God was going to do to each individual He was preaching a repentance, as in turning from the way you have been living to something brand new. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, very important, were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So very important there. Now, I believe Mark's being a little hyperbolic, so I doubt all of the country were going out to John. Of course, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they weren't going to be baptized. But Mark is trying to get us to say, wow, this was a big deal, right? People were flocking to it from this way and that way. Specifically, even Jerusalem, even the temple people, people who who were grown up around the religious hub, they were even going, and they were going and confessing their sins at the Jordan, not in the temple. So very important. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey, and this was, would have been a, a, a sign of his association with that, what was called a cult by the Jewish leaders. But this community down by the Dead Sea, this sort of hermit, reclusive, this odd, weird group of people who if you saw them, you told your children to stay away from, right? John was a part of that group. He was a weird guy, but he had a pretty unique powerful message he kept preaching. 
After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So here's what made John unique. John the Baptist didn't come like most cultic leaders preaching about himself. John came preaching about somebody else. Right? Anytime a new religion starts up, usually the guy who spearheads it is the guy who also claims to be the man from God, the prophet of God, the Messiah of God. That's what history tells us over and over again. The spearhead of the new religion is usually the one saying, hey, do this for me. Do this because I say so. I'm the guy you've been looking for. But John came on the scene and got all these crowds of people, and yet he wasn't bringing attention to himself. He was bringing attention to someone people had never met. And he says, listen, the guy that's come after me, he's mightier than I, he's greater than me, he's not even, uh, he, I'm not even worthy to be in his presence. And this was so infectious to people as they heard this humble man preaching the kingdom of God drawing near. They came close as they could, hoping that John would connect that next dot. As he began seeing through fresh eyes and searching with fierce faith, John, the gospel writer, John Zebedee's son. John the fisherman was eventually introduced to the one John the Baptist kept preaching about. One day, John and his friend Andrew were walking along the Jordan River as disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed across the river and said, Look! Look! You're about to lay eyes on the one you've been waiting for. You're about to lay eyes on the one we've all been waiting for. And when you lay your eyes on him, don't ever, ever, ever turn away. I've been preaching repent, which means turn towards something new, which means turn away from old and turn towards something different. I've been preaching repent. This is the moment you have been waiting for. Look. Guys, this is what I've been preparing you for. This is where you get off my train and get on another train. I've served my purpose. Look, there He is, the Lamb of God who is going to save the world. He is going to change the world. You write this down, buddy. You'll need these notes one day. Write this down because one day the world will look back to this moment as the moment everything Changed. Can you imagine? A vagabond, hair unkept, camel skin, a beehive that he's snacking on. Can you imagine John and Andrew and a few other dozen men who were ridiculed and blacklisted for leaving the beautiful, you know, formalized religion of Israel? They left that and followed this crazy man. And John says, listen, this is the moment we have been waiting for. He is going to save, as in restore, as in bring back to God. He is going to save, make whole, make well the whole world. John and Andrew would go on to follow Jesus for years and years to come. They would tell their brothers about Jesus. They would go on to tell their worlds about Jesus. Andrew and Peter and James and many others would die telling the world, yet John, however, would outlast them all. He never ceased to tell the story of the man he laid eyes on at the Jordan. He would spend the rest of his life telling the world, I saw the Lamb of God.
and I've never looked away. It changed my life. He'll change yours. From that moment, John, from the moment that John the Baptist said, look, John would never take his eyes off of Jesus again. Can you imagine? Little did John know what he was looking at. Who he was looking at. When John was an old man, he was an elder at Ephesus. He had led the church there for years. He had looked after Jesus' mother Mary as she settled and spent the rest of her life there. The next generation of Jesus' followers were asking this original follower to write down all that he knew, all that he had seen, all that he had heard, all that he had come to believe about Jesus. They were begging, John, before you get old and and leave us, please write this stuff down. John would compile everything into into this document that we have before us. He would write a few essays that were left on the bookshelf at the church of Ephesus. And of course, as an old, old man, he was exiled to Patmos where he would see visions and dreams of what was next. Not just for him, but for all Jesus' followers. And thankfully, he wrote all that down as well. All this content, having all of this on record, is extraordinarily valuable. It's amazing that we still have it. It's so pure. It's so simple. It is extremely profound and enlightening. And it continues to change the world. All of it falling under a simple banner. John, the original Jesus follower, tells us all we need to know and invites us to join a brand new movement. But it's not brand new anymore, is it? It's a few thousand years old. Unlike the other Gospels, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke simply record and quote, John does something that is very unique and was actually very taboo for religious literature of the day and really any day. John often editorializes and adds his own thoughts into the Gospel. Whereas if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you rarely, if ever, see the Matthew, Mark, and Luke write, this is what this meant, or this is what I think about this, or this is what God's trying to say. Rarely do they ever say anything other than they quote and they report. Quote and report. But John, under a little bit of a heavier dose of inspiration perhaps, John, who was a little bolder and brasher and and just so determined to tell the world what he knew, some of the things he said and added would have been laughed off and scoffed at. Even by fellow Christians, I'm sure some people would say, John, you don't need to write that. I mean, just report what you saw and report what you heard. Tell us the facts, but you don't need to add your opinion in there because you're, you know, what you add kind of makes it seem like we're kind of you know, expecting more than what this is really about. I mean, this is really just a Jewish movement. It's really just going to be something that our generation experiences. I mean, we may not ever, even, you know, once we get out of this generation, once this movement gets beyond us, no one may never know about Jesus. So yeah, it brings us hope. But come on, John, some of the stuff you're writing, it's just a little bit much. But, but John didn't just write to Jews. He didn't just write to his generation. John had these bold, big, crazy aspirations in mind. He believed that his generation was just one of many to come who would be enamored and captivated by Jesus the Nazarene. After Jesus and Nicodemus had supper one night, after they exchanged back and forth about being born again, the kingdom of God, what does it mean to be saved? John, many believe for a long time this was Jesus' own words, but most scholars actually believe this is John's own kind of summary 
of their conversation. It doesn't matter whether you believe one way or the other, but most believe that John actually wrote this verse that you all know very well. Most believe John wrote this as a summary, and it was such a bold thing for John to write in reference to what John, Jesus and Nicodemus talked about, bringing salvation to Israel. Here's what John summarizes their conversation with. For God so loved the world. Hey guys, this little conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus at night. Nicodemus is afraid. He's afraid Jews are going to find out about it. He's worried about Israel seeing the kingdom of God. How can we get what Jesus has? This whole point of that where Jesus says, hey, God sent his son to die for the world. He didn't send his son to condemn the world. Hey guys, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that if we just believe in him, the man that just talked to Nicodemus, the man that just said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must put your faith in the one that is going to be lifted up. Keep your eyes on him because he is the key to heaven. John says, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. And if you want to see eternal life, you better look and believe in him. Come on, John. The world? Eternal life? I mean, we're just looking for a prosperous Israel. We're just looking for an Israel that can be free from Rome. We're just looking for a local Savior or a local King. I mean, God so loved the world that salvation is being promised to whosoever believes. I mean, come on, is that really going to happen? And little did anybody know that 2,000 years later, people from all around the world would quote this as the most famous verse of any religious text. Football players would write it on their eye black. It would be printed on bumper stickers in cars. And everybody would all know that famous refrain, For God so loved the world. In a response to the elders and priests plotting to kill Jesus, claiming killing Him would be better than Rome coming and killing everyone, John writes this with a grin on his face. From John 11. He did not say this, Caiaphas. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, John's being a little bit witty. Caiaphas did not think at all he was prophesying that Jesus was going to do something good. He just wanted to get rid of Jesus. And John, with a tongue in his cheek, says, Hey, Caiaphas actually sort of kind of prophesied that Jesus would actually go on to die for the nation, and not only the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. There he is with that world thing again. For God so loved the world. And these guys that think they are making plans are actually just being used by God to elevate this platform by which he will save the world. John would go on at the end of his story to offer this lofty invitation to all who might stumble upon his writings one day. He would end the story by saying, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He says to you and He says to me, if you found this book and you've read the whole story, this has been written so that you, wherever you are around the world, you may have life in His name. John, you mean anybody that picks up your book and reads this story has the potential to know Jesus as their Savior, has the potential to see heaven because of Jesus, has the means of reaching eternal life? You mean you really believe that? 
I mean, John, when all this goes down in flames, you're going to look pretty silly when nobody outside of our little corner of the earth hears about it. John says, well, talk to me in a couple thousand years and we'll see how it works out. Jesus died for the whole world. Anyone who reads can find faith and believe in Him. John's editor was a little higher pay grade than many of the skeptics of his day or ours because his remarks were held up just as high as Scripture, just as important as the words of Jesus. Perhaps most profound and equally as outlandish and brave is John's prologue before he gets into the story of Jesus. John includes a very lengthy 18 verses make up this preamble to act to the actual gospel narrative. And it's in John's prologue that we get a taste, that we get to taste John's marvel of Jesus, and we get confronted with this question, maybe there's, a, there's way more to Jesus than we initially considered. Because John seems to bet the farm on him, if you've ever read this book before. Based on the verses we've already pulled from this book, John seems to put a lot on Jesus the light that, he, that this puts the rest of the story in is spectacular and absolutely life-changing. And there's way more to unpack than we have time uh, to, to get into tonight. But I'd like for us to at least get a glimpse of what's in store before we end. In John's prologue, he attempts to find a common ground with Jew and Greek. Remember, John's thinking the world, so he's not just talking to a small group of people. John thinks broad. He attempts to speak, the very notion, speak to that very notion within us that wants to believe or believes there is a God. He starts there and he details Jesus from this place, from this little spark within us all to a much bigger light in the universe. Because John truly believed that Jesus' story doesn't begin in an afternoon in Nazareth or even in a little town called Bethlehem. John would say that Jesus' story doesn't actually have a beginning at all. So John tries his best to put down in words who he really believes Jesus to be. And you got to understand this. John is writing this after he's already lived it. He's writing this as an older man up in his 80s or 90s. John originally followed Jesus, supposing that he was just a man, but by the end, he was sure. Jesus was absolutely God. Not just a savior from God, not just a prophet from God. He was absolutely and literally God-made flesh. John, do you really understand the implications of that? I mean, do we really have time to get into the theological idea of God in a body? John says, I don't care what you can quote and say that that doesn't work out in your head. I just know that if there is a God, I've met him. Do you understand that? John says, if I, if there is a God, I have stood eyeball to eyeball with him. He's not just from God. He's not just a messenger of God. He is God. If you want to know who God is, Jew, Greek, I don't care what background you're from, look, listen, hear, and meet Jesus. Well, John, how does that make sense? How does that, how does that happen? John says, I don't know. That's crazy. I don't know how it happened. I just know I have shook hands with, I have hugged, I have walked with, I have talked to, I have eaten beside, I have seen and heard God in a body. Call me crazy. But by the end of this, I think you'll be on board. So in these first few verses, John tells us the most ultimate things about Jesus that he can. 
John does not want us to wait to the end of the story to know who Jesus is. He wants to tell us up front, hey, this is what it took me three years to figure out. But boy, I want you to know from the onset, this is who Jesus is. So he tells us the most ultimate, most abstract, most hard to wrap our mind around things up front. He wants our minds fixed on the eternal glory and supremacy of Jesus from the very beginning. And even if you read this and say, I don't know about that, John says, well, just keep on reading. Because after about chapter 7, 8, and 9, you're going to think, you know what, I, bet, I think he actually is, I think Jesus actually is God in the body. Then you read chapter 11, oh, he absolutely is God. You get to chapter 19 and 20, and you are shouting from the rooftop, okay, John, I get it. And you'll understand why John wanted you to understand this from the very beginning. He begins abstract, but it's amazing how practical this text becomes. So you all know how John 1, 1, how John 1 begins. Verse number 1, in the beginning, John goes as far back as he can. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now we'll find out pretty quickly that John is, speak, John is calling Jesus the Word. That John is using the word as a title for Jesus. So John takes us back to the very beginning, before the beginning. He tells us what if we were to reach back, if we were to get a glimpse way back before all this stuff that we know to be, before any of it happened, there was this being, there was this force, there was this presence in all things, upholding all things. It's not even right to understand this as the universe's early days because this was before God ever said, let there be anything as far as we understand anything. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't thriving and moving and exuding his power and his essence in every corner of his realm and however many other realms there might be that we aren't privy to. John traces Jesus back before the beginning to the primal essence and presence of God. John says, okay, Jesus is the Word. He's this essence. He's this power. He's this, the nature of God. He has always been. He is, if you go as far back as you can, and there is this Word from God. And John came to believe that Jesus was undeniably the source of God's truth. He came to cling to every word of Jesus as truth from God. So this is why he calls Jesus the Word. Because John heard Jesus speak the Word of God. He heard Jesus speak as if he was God because he was. He heard Jesus speak authoritatively on this and that. And John stood back one day and said, You know what? If I were to describe Jesus, I would say he is God's Word. He is God's authoritative Word. That if God has something to say to the world, it's right there. Whatever comes out of his mouth, right there is God's word. John understood Jesus as God's final and decisive message. As everything that God has to say to us is wrapped up in his body, in his mouth. What he said, what he did, who he was, all as a witness to God's true and most pure character. John says, since the beginning, Jesus has always been God's final and decisive word. He, Jesus is the basis for all truth. The Greeks had a concept called logos. Logos referred to the utterance, the expression, the speech of the universe. 
Logos referred to the voice of the gods that carried the deity in the presence of the gods wherever it went. The voice behind nature, the voice behind all things that happen anywhere and anywhere, everywhere. And John says, he takes that word, logos, and he says, if I were to summarize Jesus in a way that everybody could understand, I'm going to call him the logos. He's the word of God. Now, this might be what David was alluding to when he mused in Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day after day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This idea that there is something being said to us by God over and in and through everything. And maybe that is what John's getting at when he says the logos. Proverbs characterizes the divine wisdom, the divine speech of God like this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up. That doesn't mean He was created. That just means He was preeminent. That the voice of God, the Word of God, had the authority of God's very presence. John tells us that Jesus, the Word, is the core authority, the truth of God. And John equates that to God. You understand that? That John is saying this Word of God is God. That it's not separate or inferior to, it's not supplementary to, it is equal to. And it's not an it, it's a he. And people would say, John, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's no concept of a trinity in the Jewish Old Testament. There's no idea of a God in person, God in flesh. None of that. We don't believe that, John. John's like, I don't care what you believe. I just know this is what I've experienced. I know God, the Spirit of God, abstract everything. I have seen Him face to face in a body. So figure that out however you want to. I don't really care about the theology of this all. I just want you to know I have seen, I have heard, He's the Word. He is God. He always has been. He is God. John says that Jesus predates flesh and blood. Jesus is the very essence of divine power and reason. The next few verses tells us that Jesus is God's creative wisdom and force. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. That's just John's way of saying, as far back as you want to go, whatever was wrapped in flesh that I've seen and I've touched and I've heard, Jesus was there. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So John says, listen, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to, be so, I'm going to make this authoritative statement. Jesus is the very means that God created the world through and by. John is making it clear to us that there is no God apart from Jesus, that Jesus is God. That's what he's trying to say. He's not trying to confuse us with what does that even mean. He's trying to get us to understand that he is equating Jesus to God. There is no difference. There is no distinction. From now on, we'll see in John's gospel that John works diligently to remove any separation or any distinction between God and Jesus. Jesus is not inferior to, secondary to, beneath, or supplementary to. Jesus is equal to God. When you see the word Jesus, you are as much seeing the word God. Of course, God is triune. That's for another sermon another day. There is Father, Son, and Spirit, but the Son, or the Word, has always been God's means of creation. His means of revelation, His means of design. As far back as Genesis chapter 1, verse number 3, God said... So how did God create? Through His Word. By speaking. His words had creative power.
power because His Word is God. 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined into darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or did not overwhelm or did not apprehend. John tells us that life came from Jesus. Eternal life comes from Jesus. Light radiates from Jesus. Darkness may have cast a shadow over creation, but light didn't and doesn't stop shining. Verse 6 and 8, There was a man sent from God, whose name was John, John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. Let's read on. That was the true light who gives light to every man coming into the world. So again, John gets very broad here. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. As many though, this is big, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, born not of blood, not of will, not of the flesh, not the will of man, but born of God. So John rolls his sleeves up and says, okay, we've, we've established that Jesus is God. The Word was in the beginning. He created through the Word. All things were made by the Word. You got that right? Jesus is the Word of God. He is God. And let me just tell you, He's the light of God that is shining to you. I've met Him. I've seen Him. I've touched Him. I've held Him. I've hugged Him. I've walked with Him before and after His death. So if I'm a little excited about this, I'm sorry. This is a big deal. So in the beginning, He was there. He came, dwelt among us, and His own people rejected Him, and yet the whole world has been invited to know Him. So John's excited. He's saying, I know this is all over the place, but guys, guys, here's the message. As many as receive Him, as many as accept Him, as many as believe in Him, you are a child of God. That's why this was written. So that you can know God as your Father. Through Jesus, His Son. John immediately goes deep and wide. He portrays Jesus as this light shining to the whole world, introducing everyone to God. And he says, And and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory and the glory uh, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word showed up in flesh, and He showed up as a man, as a son of God. He dwelt among us. The incarnation brought life to our planet. The incarnation brought this life, this, and it's never ceased to put this light out. Where Jesus is proclaimed, preached, taught, His light shines, and the darkness does not overcome. Jesus is God's Word to you daily. John says that this is what I want you to know about Jesus first and foremost. He is God. He is life. He is light. And the God, the life, and the light became flesh and tabernacled among us. He set up a tent in our midst, better than the Old Testament tabernacle, better than the temple. God did not dwell under a curtain or under brick, under brick and mortar. God became flesh and blood, full of grace and truth. So God became one of us, but He was full of 
grace and truth showing us His own heart. 16 through 18, And of His fullness we have received grace for grace. For law was given through Moses, and this is so blasphemous for John to say, law was given through just a man named Moses, but grace and truth has come through God in flesh, Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but I have. Nobody has seen God but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom or is known, who is made known from the Father, the only begotten Son who is from the Father has declared Him and made Him known. You know what John is just claiming here? John was absolutely convinced, absolutely certain that he had come face to face with God. Jesus is the real deal. He knew and wants us to know that Jesus is without a doubt God. The full display, full measure, He's the ultimate Word from God. And as we study, we'll come face to face as well, and you'll never be the same. John wants us to know Jesus' story before he gets to his own story or anybody else's story. He's going to tell a lot of stories. But John wants us to know first and foremost. This is the story of John, follower of Jesus, how I became convinced that Jesus was and is undeniably God in flesh. I'll entertain your arguments and questions all night long, but I want you to hear my story first. This series is called Undeniable because the gospel, according to John, confronts all that is unbelievable with something that is undeniable. Jesus is more than just a man. Much more. John would say, He's God. And when you see what I've seen, you'll know for yourselves. Let me pray for you. Father, this is an invitation from you. This gospel, this prologue has invited us to get a glimpse of Jesus in a brand new, in a fresh, maybe overwhelming way. Lord, I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of questions about what does it mean in the beginning was the Word, Word was from God, all that stuff. That's a lot deeper than we probably can go. But John says, listen, I'm just a simple fisherman, and I joined a religious group, and I heard this preacher that was charismatic, and he told me the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world, and I got my eyes on him, and I've never took my eyes off of him, and I just want everybody to know what I know, that Jesus is God. And if God had a word for us, if God had a word from the very beginning, this is that very word made flesh so that we can see for ourselves and feel and touch and see and know for ourselves that Jesus is God in a body. And he showed up on this planet to show us that God is not far away. In fact, God is very near. And as many as believe, as many as accept, as many as receive can be children of God because Jesus dwelt among us to show us who we are and how we can know God. Father, this is just the beginning, but if somebody just is overwhelmed with your awesome gospel tonight and they want to just give you some praise tonight. Lord, may this altar be that platform for them. If somebody is convicted by all this and they need to, they want to know Jesus deeper and they want to go more and more 
into the, into the, 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 the relationship with Jesus, Lord, let this be the beginning of that. This is an incredible journey. Thank you for inviting us to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you remain seated, if, the, if God is trying your heart, if God just wants to pour his spirit out on you tonight and you want to receive it, if you just want to offer him praise tonight, what an awesome opportunity we've been given. Just to hear John tell this story, it's exciting, isn't it? It's overwhelming. It's over our heads at times. But John just wants you to know that in all the eons of time and all the eternity past and all the complexities of God and all the things that we don't ever, won't ever understand, John has told you and me that I believe that that God became a person and that person went to die on the cross for you and me so that we might be saved. This is just the beginning of that story, but John has made a pretty good case, hasn't he? If God had a word for us, it is found in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that that is what God has to say to us. He is what God has to say to us.